Hello, listeners. How are you all doing today? You know, I want you, wherever you are, to take a few seconds to appreciate the amazing DNA that you have in yourselves right now and all of the genes that help build who you are. But who's in control of that information? And what can we do about it? In this episode, we talk about genomic data ownership and privacy ethics with David Kepsel, lawyer, author, and philosopher. David's company, EncryptGen, has recently released its new marketplace platform, and a link to the platform can be found in the show notes. It was a fascinating conversation, and I think you'll really enjoy it. But before we start, I have a few reminders for all your listeners. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast, rate it, and review. Tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like. It continues to be a fun learning experience for me, and I really appreciate all the support and interest coming from the industry. We are at the beginning of some big disruption in healthcare, and I'm happy you're listening here today. Let's start the show. Hi, I'm your host, Ray Dogan, and welcome to Health Unchained. On this show, I will be speaking with healthcare entrepreneurs, thought leaders, and executives who are using blockchain technologies to revolutionize healthcare. These innovators are building the distributed infrastructure and diverse communities required for a trusted, secure, and decentralized healthcare ecosystem. Enjoy the show. What is blockchain? blockchain. What is blockchain? The doctor will see you now. Today we have David Kepsel, JD, PhD. Is that right, Kepsel? Am I saying it right? Kepsel. Kepsel. He is the founder and CEO of EncryptGen. And they are using the blockchain to actually allow people to upload their genetic information and then trying to create a marketplace to have researchers come in and pay people to use that data. And uh, welcome to the show, David. Thank you so much for being here. Um, Can you actually tell me a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in the blockchain? Sure. Um, well, uh, I was a philosophy professor for uh, quite a while, and I've been a lawyer as well. Um, but um, right before I got interested in um, uh, uh, blockchains and uh, genomics, I was involved in um, theoretical applications of uh, genomics and property. Uh, specifically, I had written about um, uh, patenting of genes, and um, I've been writing a bit about other issues relating to uh, ownership of, uh, of uh, personal data. So um, I had I'd gotten lucky because I had written a book called Who Owns You? That was published um, in 2009, and just a couple months after that came out, um, there was a very famous lawsuit uh, that was started by the ACLU. I had no idea it was coming. Uh, it was just uh, fortuitous timing. Uh, and several years uh, uh, of um, litigation later, uh, long story short, the uh, Supreme Court more or less agreed that genes shouldn't be patented, at least in their natural form. And that was what I argued in my book. Now, that left a big sort of gap in uh, how you're going to uh, manage and control data, uh, which can't be patented. So. Um, the question was, how are individuals going to exert some sort of ownership over this data? How are they going to be able to um, control its use or, or even um, profit by it? So I've been teaching about ethics and um, um, and these matters uh, before, and I've taught about people like Henrietta Lacks, who you may have heard of, mm-hmm. um, 
Um, she, she and, and you know genomic information uh, uh, could profit people like Henrietta Lacks, where they contribute something to um, science uh, as she did. Um, and even if, if their contributions are more minor, uh, you know, a lot of people are, are committing their data to use in science. And so my wife and I, my wife is Dr. Uh, um, Gonzalez, and she, she and I wrote a, um, an article a couple years back on um, big data and genomic privacy. And um, that was published, and uh, I had been dabbling in blockchain for a while in many ways, including theoretically and practically. I had a couple uh, computers doing some mining and was interested in it. So I thought that there were some um, connections and maybe we can bring these things together and create some solutions for some of the problems that we've been writing about and worrying about. Yeah. And you wrote, you know, more than just that book, you have a few books actually written. You've wrote it more recently a book called Who Owns You? Science, Innovation, and the Gene Patent Wars. So is that like an extension of your first book written in 2009 or uh does that deal with other matters well that was an updated version so you know the case that um came along a couple months after the first version came out first edition came out really did change the landscape and i felt i needed to update it to reflect the changed landscape one thing you said earlier is that after the lawsuit after the case corporations were not allowed to patent genes as they were discovered in humans as they are naturally does right. that mean if we modify a gene are you allowed to patent that are you let's say there's a gene uh that we find in a human um and we just alter it a little bit to make it resistant to some sort of virus or bacteria can you patent that gene theoretically sure um so the Barrier to um, patent used to be that something was inventive. It was not something you simply found. Um, so for years, there was this uh, very lame argument that when you isolate a gene uh, from a sur the surrounding genome, you're somehow creating something new. And that was what the Supreme Court rejected. But they haven't touched on the issue of edited genes. And there's good case law to suggest that if you edit genes, uh, you would be um, inventing something that would be susceptible to patent. So, um, yeah, I, th I think that 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 has yet to be tested, but that is likely what courts would hold. Interesting. So, I kind of want to know a little bit more about EncryptGen. So, the company you have now, and um, from what I've seen online, is basically what a person can do if they currently have their, you know, genetic data from Twenty Three and Me. They could take that raw file from the platform and upload it onto your website. Can you tell me a little bit more downstream what happens after that? Yeah, sure. It's, it's pretty interesting. So, you know, we've gone through a couple of iterations. Let me give you a little background before I talk about the technical details, because there were uh, originally plans to put the genomic data on, you know, the blockchain, the Ethereum blockchain, or, you know, a public blockchain. And that that turned out to not be fe not be feasible, not because of the size of the data. In fact, we would solve that issue. That how did you solve that issue? Genomic data is mostly uh, unimportant. <laughs> What's in your genome uh, is mostly not really useful. Okay, there's three billion base pairs, but only a tiny little bit of that matters, and that's the variation. So. 
we figured out how, how to use a reference genome, basically strip out all the variation. Um, and this is not a big deal. Other, other people have done this for years. You pick, take out all the variation, and then you strip it down to basically only the variation. And then you've got a very manageable chunk of data that you could put on the Ethereum blockchain if you wanted to. Um, the problem with that is the ethics, the privacy. Uh, that's not necessarily data you want floating around associated with your wallet or whatever in a way that could re-identify you. So uh, we chose not to do that with a private, with a public blockchain. We instead um, turned uh, our, uh, so we started in actually late December of 2016. We had our first prototypes underway in January and February of 2017. And by uh, March, as we were planning to go to the bio, bio IT show in Boston, we realized we were going to have to um, abandon a public blockchain. And we found Multichain, which is a really neat platform hmm. created by Coin Sciences Limited, um, gaining a fair amount of traction in the permissioned blockchain universe, uh, which is mostly um, corporate blockchains, um, internal blockchains. And um, yeah, we found it actually to be a, a pretty useful medium. We also looked at Hyperledger for a while because of the speed. So Hyperledger is nice and fast. Um, but uh, Hyperledger, if, I don't know if you've ever played with it. It's really wonky and difficult to learn. And it's everything so unique to Hyperledger that you know you have to basically, it's like learning uh, a Slavic language when you're used to Latin languages. Hmm. Despite all the efforts IBM has put into it and all the... I, I, look, I, I'm... I know people at IBM and and really believe in their products, um, but I, I think Hyperledger has a way to go to make it more user friendly. And I've heard this from other developers too, who are trying to build things using Hyperledger and saying it's really just a very difficult. So um, it makes multi-chain more attractive. Multi-chain is is built specifically for permissioned blockchains, which was what we had decided we needed to do. Uh, to maintain the sort of privacy that uh, we think is ethically necessary and, and which turned out to be legally necessary with the GDPR. Uh, so, we, you know, we're glad we did it because of the GDPR. Um, but um, yeah, multi-chain is also very fast. Um, and uh, it's, you know, now it's actually the, the, the platform is pretty flexible. So we, we've built a, what amounts to a bespoke um, blockchain using multi-chain as our platform. Um, and we think we've made some improvements, actually, to multi-chain, which when we publish our, our uh, code on the GitHub will, um, uh, I think, um, provide others with similar uh, benefits as well. So the, the, what we have is a permission blockchain where all the genomic transactions are, are uh, logged. Uh, they go on to our ledger. Uh, they're done with our um, DNA token in the multi-chain form, which was the original form of the DNA token. Um, and we can turn those transactions into fiat um, and other current other cryptocurrencies, and then export those um, to the ERC twenty token of, of our choice. Uh, in our case, it's the DNA our, uh, ERC twenty token. But if we have partnerships with other companies um, in the same sphere, in the same space, we can accept their co their coins as well. So what happens uh, on our platform? And I, I didn't mean. Uh, to um, ignore your original question, but I needed it was a little bit of backstory I wanted to give you. Absolutely, absolutely. So the the um, 
system takes the data in, and it, it, another thing we learned early on, and, and um, is that you know the data is not really useful uh, without metadata. Um, so we've been talking. My my wife is a genomic scientist, and we know how she uses genomic data in her job. Um, but we've been also gearing it. She does a sort of basic research in um, things like diabetes and other um, and pharmacogenomics. Um, but um, we were trying to gear this towards usefulness in the uh, in the um, oncology realm uh, because that's where a lot of this research is really vital. And um, we came to understand that you really you really need to build profiles of people and and gather metadata about the individual to correlate with the genomic data. And then you need to make that genomic data easily searchable. Uh, so our system takes in the data. If you go there now, you can upload your um, 23andMe or Ancestry files to um, Ancestry.com um, files. And our uh, system will look for things like the RSID, uh, the, um, the position, the gene name, um, the um, um, you know where it fits on the gene ontology and and label all of these things. Now this is no small task because the data comes in different sources from different sources and we're building it to accept other types of consumer tests as well as well as whole genome sequencing. It tags all that stuff um, and then it correlates it with your phenotypic data as reported by you and then makes that all searchable so that can be searched. And then finally, what it allows you to do is when, when, when your data fulfills the search of a researcher um, and, and they want it, um, they can, you, you know, you'll have entered your price and they can send, they'll be able to click a button and say buy now um, and get that data. Interesting. So, you know, you mentioned um, the idea of also importing whole genome sequencing types of data. So now, you know, in my previous podcast, I actually spoke with George Church and on that episode, he discussed like the differences between, or actually the spectrum of DNA sequencing or genome sequencing. And I guess my question to you is how much more valuable is the whole genome sequence data versus the 23andMe um, kind of data you're collecting now? It's a lot more valuable in the long run. Okay, so right now, if you do a consumer test, you know that you're going to get a pretty good picture of the person, um, uh, their genetic makeup, uh, because again, it's looking mostly at variants, not all of them, but most of them. Um, and we know a fair amount about how those variants relate to your phenotype, your health, et cetera. Um, but it's not enough. So the, the next couple decades of genomic science really depend upon gathering much more data than we've gathered so far, processing it um, in ways that allow us to correlate it better with individuals' health and well-being and, and, um, and derive new drugs, et cetera, new treatments and new uh, hypotheses about the relations of genes to our health. So we all envision a world where next generation sequencing is going to be able to provide us cheap um, and good whole genome sequencing that will just populate these blockchains with, with tons of data that we can use um, for, for science and medicine. Yeah, and the costs have gone down significantly. I think I read in the year 2001, I think the price of a whole, you know, 
whole genome sequencing was about a hundred million dollars and now it's under a thousand dollars so that's a yeah. significant drop in cost and you know the next few years it'll just continue to keep dropping and yeah. i feel like there'll be no reason not to do a test it'll just be part of your physical exam if you haven't gotten one already absolutely yeah that that's like, that's what we expect as well do you think the industry is ready for that? I feel like we have such standards and institutions, and I don't know if we're going to be able to explain, read, kind of digest that information and kind of help society understand what it actually means. Well, yeah, part of the problem is we don't know what it means. <laughs> you know, our, there are tremendous gaps in our knowledge right now uh, about the roles of genes in, in um, I mean, we're, we're only right now finalizing the count of actual genes in, in our bodies, you know. Uh, we thought at one time it was 100,000. It's turning out to be some, some, something like 21,000 something. And, there, you know, there's some wiggle room still as to what counts as a gene. So, I mean, the, and then relating that to um, our ongoing uh, lives is another uh, uh, challenge because there's a lot of things that, change the way uh, our genes um, function over time. So, you know, epigenetics is the study of how our, envir our environment uh, affects our functioning over time and changes us in ways. So, and, and these changes can be passed on from generation to generation. So we're learning a lot, but we still know almost nothing. So we need a lot more data. This is what's apparent to everybody. And we need to encourage the gathering of that data by creating um, platforms that respect individuals' rights over the data and that uh, protect the privacy of that data. And many people are finding, uh, like we did early on, that blockchains are, are the way to go. Yeah, and I think, as you said, epigenetics is a really interesting field right now. And, you know, the ability to utilize uh, mm -hmm. the environment of a cell or the surroundings of, um, you know, cellular material to either suppress or overexpress a gene to the benefit of the human very it's a very targeted approach to helping patients feel better and i think it's uh, a growing field absolutely very interesting um and you know definitely will be following that do you have any like cool i guess insights it's into what's going on with epigenetics at the moment and how it relates to um you know your company potentially well, I think that, um, you know, as we learn how our environments affect our, our um, behaviors and um, functionings over time, um, we'll get better precision medicine and better precision nutrition and other ways to direct our, uh, our health uh, that are personalized by our genetic makeup. So that's what's interesting. So, um, you know, I've, I don't know how, if you've read about these studies of people who, who are the children of people who survived starvations. This is an interesting um, no, uh, thing in uh, epigenetics right now that they found that populations, you know, the second generation, not the generation that starved. And they, they were looking, for instance, at the, the, the Dutch um, starvations in the early 40s, right after World War II. Um, the children of those um, people who had suffered th through those starvations had epigenetic traces that um, they they found were related to what their parents had gone through. So 
you know, the genes of their parents had changed according to their nutrition or lack thereof in such a way that their kids' health was affected. Those are the, they pass this along to their children. And this is, I mean, this is a really important insight because it means that, you know, when we're talking about personalized medicine and directing, you know, the delivery of drugs and, and nutrition to you in a way that is um, uh, targeted towards what your genetic makeup um, can bet- best handle, we're also talking about how it will affect your your kids, children, the next generation. A phenomenal insight and 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 a, a great responsibility. So personalized medicine, as enabled by um, genomics and and epigenetics and other um, related uh, studies, is going to be necessary not just from a health standpoint but from an ethical standpoint. That's interesting. So I have a question then. In that study, were the next generation were they affected negatively or were they you know um enhanced because their parents went through a starvation period yeah that's interesting so um there were some negative effects uh, there was mm-hmm. for instance a greater uh, incidence of depression as i recall hmm. um and other um psychological um conditions um which they didn't know if it correlated directly with the the genetic with the you know the, what they went through the epigenetic um uh, situation but um there were other uh, ways in which they appeared to be metabolizing differently and I, I whether you decide it's enhanced or not depends upon you know what it is you're surrounded by for you know nutrition that is interesting because you know ethically speaking if you think about uh let's say there's discovery that what you do in your life will affect your children and like a specific thing, for example, drinking alcohol, will a government decide you're not allowed to drink alcohol until you have a few children and then you can, uh, you know, because we don't want to harm the next generation. I mean, this is very theoretical and I don't think it'll happen anytime. It's not that theoretical. I mean, it's the same question nuclear plant uh, workers have to face when they're, um, Mm -hmm. you know, deciding whether to work uh, uh, in, in hotter zones in the, in the plant, you know, are they, are they done having children, you know, because the radiation that you're exposed to will potentially affect your germ cells. So it's, it's not that far fetched. And, and it's something we're learning just another way, uh, you know, things as, as, as benign as our um, nutrition, as our food intake can also um, cause um, uh, changes to our, to our germ cells. It's really interesting. Um, I kind of want to still learn a little bit more about encryption. So sure. You are one of the early adopters of blockchain as a genomics company. And what, what were some of the challenges you faced initially? Well, you know, there are, there are a number, but one is that, um, and, and we, as I said, we started at the end of 2016. So that the ICO craze had not really reached its height mm-hmm. at the time, or if it had, I, I hadn't heard of it. Um, uh, the, the, but I did start hearing about it when I started to look for funding. So we started with our own um, uh, friends and family round. We raised half a million that way. Um, and then I went on the VC market before I ever looked at um, funding through token sales. Um, and I was starting to get pushback from uh, traditional funding sources because blockchain had already started to become associated with um, the sort of the ICO um, craze. Yeah. And, and, and it had become tarnished already um, at that point um, by that. And, and that is a real challenge in the industry right now. So 
You know, there are there have been many studies and and lots of publications that have shown that most of the you know most ICOs fail mm -hmm. so far, um, uh, and you know people were getting into it to get rich instead of necessarily to you know to put their support behind a project or because they wanted to use a platform. So. I think that for me, the the first year was a real struggle to try to, and and this is why we did what we did. We built our prototype and our and our uh, and showed it before we had even considered doing a token sale, um, and basically had the um, architecture worked out, um, and we were we were looking for traditional funding, so that was a huge challenge. And blockchain right now has the general challenge to make itself um, uh, respectable um, to the traditional capital markets and to traditional users. Um, because many of the use cases are centered around um, uh, simply uh, making a lot of money, um, which is not in itself a bad thing. Okay, I'm not gonna judge. Um, but if you wanna do something like create a genomics blockchain platform to increase uh, sharing of data for science, and all people are seeing is dollar signs, that is a challenge that, at least for me, with my company, was difficult to overcome. And as we managed our token sale, it was also difficult to try to keep everybody concentrated on the real goal, uh, which was to, to build a platform and use these tokens as the, as the coin on that platform. Right, you're right. There are tons of you know, people out there that are just trying to make a quick buck and it's, you know, difficult to navigate. Even for me, um, I find that when a Telegram channel has like 50,000 users and they just started two months ago, I wonder like where did all these people come from kind of thing. Uh, so there's lots of uh, due diligence that's required, more so than a typical company, actually, I would say, if you really want to invest in them. And that's one thing I found interesting about your uh, company is that you actually had a you know working prototype, and there was something to there. Were, there was actually a website where you can upload the, this data. Um, I guess more recently, it's not just you know talk. You actually have something working, so that's kind of cool. Well, Different. thank you. You know, we always. I just wanted to build something that did what we wanted it to do. And so, you know, in fact, this is also the challenge post ICO, post token sale, um, because, uh, you know, a lot of people have their eyes set on the price of the token. And uh, meanwhile, I'm trying to get my team to make the product. Right. And the two things don't necessarily have anything to do with one another until the platform is up and functioning. So um, that is a that's an ongoing challenge. And and I think that blockchain needs to not only, you know, make sure that it's respect, respected and respectable um, for traditional capital markets and users, um, but make sure that it keeps its eye on, uh, you know, building really good things. Um, and, 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 and if they can do that, if, and, and there's a lot of money available to do that now, um, if it can do that, then and we, we have a few good use cases, then people will start to see that this is really a, a powerful technology um, when put to the right uses. Plus, you were able to snag a pretty cool uh, ticker, DNA. It's a, it's a nice one to have. You know, I, we, <laughs> I, got, uh, I got very lucky in that. I, I couldn't believe our luck that nobody had, had gotten DNA. And, 
you know, I've offered it to all our competitors too. You know, don't don't bother with a token sale in these this day and age. You can use our token. We're free uh, to do so. That's really nice of you. That's really great. Um, I also read that the company is currently you are the current CEO, um, mm-hmm. and I did read somewhere that there might be a new CEO to replace you. Is that still true? What's the story behind that? I don't know. You know, a, a, a year ago after I had finished an exhausting token sale and was I just wanted to get back to building the product, um, I wanted to be able to find somebody who could take over the reins for me on the business end. And, you know, frankly, as an academic, um, doing business wasn't really necessarily my strength. Um, plus, you know, as I talked to um, VCs and other, um, you know, uh, seed funders, uh, one of their concerns was that I'm not a, you know, I'm not a businessman. I'm a, I'm an academic. Um, but over time, I think I've learned how to run the company, and I've adjusted, and we've been agile, and we've been able to adjust um, to uh, uh, a more competitive landscape. And I, I feel a lot more comfortable now with my ability to run the company and to see it succeed. So, um, I'm still open to that if necessary. But at this point, I'm not, I'm not actively looking. Um, to to and and neither is the board of our company. So we're incorporated in Delaware. We have a a board, um, and I I don't think right now we we need to um, change the management in order to um, succeed. So we're going to see how it goes over the next few months. We're launching the full platform in the next um, sixty days. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know after that we're poised to grow by revenue. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of people interested in what we're making and, uh, you know, I think there'll, there'll be other opportunities to grow as well. Welcome to the Health Unchained News Corner. Today's story is not a typical healthcare blockchain article I talk about in most episodes. So I truly hope I don't offend anyone with this story. This relates to the adult film industry. Provocative, yes, I know. A subsidiary of Pornhub called Tube8 has entered into a partnership with Vice Industry Token. The partnership aims to tokenize the Tube8 platform by paying users to watch and interact with pornographic videos. So instead of paying for content, people will be paid to consume the content. Apparently, TubeAid has 10 million registered users who regularly use the platform and about 150 million monthly visits. Vice Industry Token is working to migrate to a forked version of the Steam blockchain called Graphene. So the reason I'm talking about this story is if you consider what sparked the mass adoption of VHS and DVDs and online streaming, the adult film industry played a major role in getting people to use the new forms of media. This could be one particular use case that could speed up adoption in cryptocurrencies. It sets a whole different meaning to crypto kitties. Of course, there are still technological, economic, and operational challenges ahead before people will start getting paid to watch other people go at it. But it makes me wonder, if we could pay people to watch porn, We should be able to incentivize people to eat right, exercise, and maybe even sleep enough. Let me know what you think in the SoundCloud comments 
or join the Telegram group and be part of the conversation. Okay, now get your mind out of the gutter and let's get back to the show with Dr. David Kepsel. Can you describe a little bit how you'll be generating revenue and how that will be coming into the company? Yeah, so this is one of the ways we, we've been agile. So originally we thought we were going to sell nodes to pharmaceutical companies and universities, etc. And those nodes would um, um, buy the data from anybody who'd be able to upload. Our year and a half of trying to sell nodes to company companies um, convinced us that that was a fruitless task, um, that um, they weren't going to invest in something that they could uh, easily uh, wait for uh, uh, a you know, few extra months or a year um, and then you know, see if a free alternative came along. So we changed our, our business plan back in March so that we're basically the Binance of genomic data. Um, so, you know, Binance made a uh, billion dollars in its first year simply by taking commissions off trades um, because they were uh, a pretty good platform and they were friendly to use and um, they were available in many jurisdictions. Um, and we intend to do the same uh, with genomic data. So um, the I've done a lot of the uh, calculations on this based on what we know about the value of the data. Um, from companies like 23andMe. Um, I anticipated the sort of deal that GSK just made with mm. the 23andMe, pretty much down to the number. Um, the, the, the price of an individual's data on 23andMe's platform is about 130 bucks. That's what it comes to. Everybody who's agreed to be had their data sold has had their data sold for about 130 bucks worth by now. And it's 80% of the people on their platform, and there are 5 million people on their platform. So if you extrapolate from those numbers, and I've been, this is what I do in my head while I'm going to sleep or not sleeping, <laughs> um, you realize that if I can get 5,000 of those same people on our platform this year uh, after we launch the full platform, uh, we become profitable. Um, simply by taking commissions off the transactions on the on the on our blockchain um, within six months so i won't need vc money i mean I, if i can get five thousand then i can grow organically that's pretty impressive uh, do you think that i mean right now what you're doing is getting the data from the users uh you're not actually providing the data to them so you're not a lab that's going to be sequencing the data at all do you anticipate potentially working with a lab uh, to partner with them? How do you? We do. Oh, you do. Yeah. Well, one of our partners is Codigo Forty Six. Okay. Uh, which they um comp it's one of the Illumina uh, certified companies. They are basically the Twenty Three and Me of Mexico. Hmm. Um, and they have access to the same technology that Twenty Three and Me does, at least the microarray testing kits. Um, and they're they're able to process a, a thousand kits a month now, but they're ramping that up rapidly. So <clears throat> I'm, we've partnered with them. You can buy a kit from them on our site using the DNA token right now. How much is it? Uh, it's like 900 uh, DNA. So it's, uh, okay. It's, Does uh, that change? So another question is, so if it's 900 DNA tokens, does that price change? Like, let's say the price of the token change. Does it match what it is in U.S. dollars, or? Yeah. 
Yeah, we're going to. It's easy enough to grab the API from Coin Market Cap and have that adjusted dynamically. Right. So, what is the U.S. equivalent? It's about one hundred and twenty bucks, I think. Okay, so it's a, it's a similar technology as Twenty Three and Me. It's a little more expensive than Twenty Three and Me because we're also Codigo Forty Six has agreed not to sell your data to anyone. Hmm. So Twenty Three and Me sells every kit they sell at a loss. Of about fifty bucks, okay. um, because they expect to make that money back when they sell your data. I mean, they're still lo- losing money hand over fist uh, every time they sell a kit, but um, they know they're going to get back selling your data to pharmaceutical companies at a premium. Well, we're undercutting that business a little bit. We're taking their the you know we're happy to, that they're subsidizing the cost of those kits for people so they can get cheap testing. Um, if somebody doesn't want to buy the Codigo 46 kit, for instance. Um, but um, we're advising those customers to opt out of scientific studies from 23andMe, put the data on our on our system, mm-hmm. and then reap the rewards themselves. And we think pharmaceutical companies will follow that market, looking for data that's also cheaper, uh, mm-hmm. because it's not a monopolistic price, um, and go directly to sure. the individual and pay them. So you said right now, if you look at the price uh, GSK is paying 23andMe, an average person's DNA or genotyping information costs, it's priced at around $130, right? Let's just say. Well, no, that's, from, that's working backwards from the previous deals. The GSK thing uh, adds a lot. It's maybe a, a, a few digits to that. I don't know. Um, uh, so we're, I mean, the, the $130 um, figure was based upon up until the GSK deal got it so everybody who if everybody had who had had their data sold by 23andme was paid directly up into the JS, gsk deal they would have already made 130 bucks but the gsk deal adds a i don't know doubles that or triples that so i guess what i'm alluding to is what is our data worth and i guess each person has a different value because maybe they're yeah. i don't know more uncommon to find, <laughs> but uh, what is a person's data worth, genetic data worth today, and is it going to increase over time? Are researchers going to value genomic information more over time? I believe they will. I mean, because there's going to be greater demand for it, but the the um, you know the uh, supply is going to increase over time too. So the price will likely go down, hmm. um, and that's good. We want that that price to go down to increase the amount of good science that can be done, um, and uh, you know the the you'll make up for it in volume. Your data may be sold at you know five bucks here, five bucks there, but over the course of your lifetime, it may end up to be thousands. Who knows? Um, and even if the price is coming down and the volume of of transactions is going up, uh, you're going to continue to to reap a reward. So the 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 value is exactly what the market will bear. Right now, the market is monopolized. Hmm. So it's not really a, a good indication of uh, free market price. We intend to create a free market where the value um, is based upon um, real rules of supply and demand instead of a monopolistic um, marketplace. That's really interesting. I think it's also going to be uh, fascinating to watch when people start uploading their own um, you know, daily habits 
dietary intake, exercise habits, things like that, that's going to add even more value. So that's going to add a, a, another layer. So you have your genomic information is one. Then your, yep. um, you know, your daily habits is another one. And then maybe your environmental factors, where you're living, what kind of air you're breathing, and, and these kinds of things are all going to impact um, you know, the, that value of that data. It's going to be interesting. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're gonna, we've built our system to be modular, so we continue to add more profile data over time. Um, uh, by the way, 23andMe does the same thing. They update your, their profile data all the time. Um, and we, we are also partnering with companies that allow you to interact with that data in, an, in analytics as well. So one of our alliances is with a company called sequencing.com. And they have a marketplace for apps for gen genomic data. It's really neat. I've played with a number of them, and you can get really some interesting reports. And it's a, it's a, for them, it's another sort of marketplace where people can write and submit apps and sell them or give them away for free, and you can start to interact with your data in, in ever-increasing ways. See, I think that stuff is really cool, really interesting. I'd love to see, like, you know, what I'm about, what my parents are about. I actually did a 23andMe test about five years ago and I got my family to do it as well. So am okay. I too late? Did I lose? Is it still possible for me to have ownership of my data? Or Absolutely, yeah. No, you can log in now because you have a profile there. You can download the raw data file uh, for you and your family members. You can opt out of scientific studies with 23andMe and you know put it on our market and see who, who's interested. So, so no, it's not too late. That's good to hear. So what's the traction look like? So how many people have actually uploaded uh, data into your platform so far? And you know what kind of interest are you getting? Okay, so we're pre-launch, really. I mean, right now we have uh, the MyGene chain, which is the, it's, it's in its version one, but um, we haven't been advertising it and selling it because we, yeah, actually, we, we just started the indexing functions um, uh, and nailed down the, the um, the ways that we're indexing it. So we would have had to go back and index again. We have about a thousand profiles and we have about a hundred people who've uploaded their data. So now that we're going to be launching the version one of the gene chain itself, where people can actually start to search that data, mm -hmm. um, we're gonna start our concerted campaign, uh, marketing to individuals to upload their data and doing direct marketing to likely genomic data buyers uh, who we've been identifying and putting into our CRM for about a year. Hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about the gene chain and what kind yeah. of, what that product is? Yeah, that, that is a, I don't know. I can share a screen with you if you want to see, can I? Am I you able to? Could, but I'm actually going to just be cutting out the audio. I've actually seen it. It's more for the, yeah. for the audience. I, I've looked into it. I've, I've watched well, it. Anybody can check out the demo of it. Okay. Cause yeah. that, that's, I'm going to cool. put the link into the, podcast notes so people can do this on their own and check it out for if, sure. If you want to check out our demo, which, uh, which is what it will ultimately look like, you could go to marketdemo.encryptgen.info. Marketdemo.encryptgen.info. Um, and that is, um, that's a really nice looking version of what we're ultimately um, uh, going to be launching. Um, and you know that you can go now and onto the my gene chain on our product page of our website and upload the data but if if you want to play with it and see what it's going to be like um, marketdemo.encryptgen.info will give you a really good 
idea of what that's going to look like. And it'll be your full-service genomic data marketplace and repository. So individuals will go there to upload the data, create their profiles, um, and they'll be eventually able to share that data with the doctor as well. Um, and for people who are searching for data, they'll simply um, you know, fill out which you know, the parameters they're interested in um, and get a list of those who have the data and be able to click a button and buy. That's really all there is to it. It's a marketplace. It's sort of the eBay of genomic data or Binance. Got it. What are some of the typical parameters you're talking about? Um, parameters right now are um, a lot of demographic stuff, but we'll be including health stuff in um, our, uh, our quarter four. So right now it's going to be things like ethnicity, hair color, eye color. What, it, what would be kind of um, cosmetic stuff or demographic stuff? Um, age, height, BMI. It calculates your BMI, so you know, uh, be careful of what you enter. Be sure it's uh, what you want to want to know. Um, I don't like my BMI, for instance, but uh, I'm working on it now. Um, at least I have a genetic. Uh, uh, I know uh, some genetic tricks in order to uh, uh, have better nutrition. Um, but we'll include health, self-reported health data, and that'll roll out second. That's going to be in quarter four. That we're working on that with lawyers because there's some uh, liability issues we want to be sure of and privacy issues in the Euro European Union um, uh, mostly. Uh, so that'll roll out in quarter four uh, once we've got the go-ahead for that. Um, and um, that's going to include things like is there a history of heart disease in your family? Uh, you know, um, have you ever had a melanoma? Have you ever um, you know, had... Um, uh, let's see, uh, do you wear eyeglasses, things like that, things things that have to do with uh, health-related issues. Right, like 23andMe has these surveys that they conduct yep. every time you log in. It's like, would you like to answer 100 questions? Like, uh, maybe not right now, but yeah. um, am I getting paid uh, for it? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I look through them just so I can see what they all are. Um, and, we, uh, and, 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 and that's where the value for the data comes from, frankly. Yeah. Enough people fill that stuff in to make it useful and, and worthwhile for companies to search it. So we'll be having similar um, questionnaires. You can fill in as much or as little as you want. Since, it's, since it is self-reported, are there risks that some of the data is not accurate? And yep. how are we dealing with that? Or how is the industry dealing with that? That is something that um, so far can only be um, fully satisfied by contract. So, you know, if you falsify the data, uh, then, you know, the company has the right to refuse you service, for instance, mm. uh, if they can figure out that you falsified the data. Um, and there are ways, actually. We're building in, one of the things that we also realized early on was that we needed to build in some validation. If I were to put in that, you know, I'm an African-American, for instance, because I think that population is going to be more valuable um, uh, for searching, it's important that we can validate that. And, and of course, there are ways to do that because then, you know, the ethnicity and, uh, is something we can more or less uh, confirm. So we can build in some validation. Uh, some of it is contractual. Um, and, you know, ultimately, you know, it's not like you're going to become a, a millionaire if you say you have some rare disease. Yeah, that's true. That's what I was thinking. Like, let's say there are researchers looking for 
uh, someone with a rare disease and willing to pay a thousand bucks for it. And I just say, yeah, sure, I have that disease. And that's right. obviously not medically accurate. So there's risks with the research being false. Um, right. that's, that's what I was wondering about. So tell me a little bit about your current competition. Who is doing, you know, there are a handful of companies doing this at least. Yeah. Uh, Dozens, actually. Dozens, yeah, sure. <laughs> Which ones do you find are interesting uh, that you might want to, like to work with, or just what are your thoughts on that? I will work with any of them. Um, what we want to be able to do is create an interactive online um, system for everybody to be able to um, share and sell their data or just keep it safe. Uh, we started early on when we started seeing competitors coming along because by about July, after we had com finished our token sale last year, um, July of 20 2017, we saw that there were some competitors coming along. Um, we uh, early on decided to uh, lead an effort to create a consortium of sorts. Um, I put out a call um, to create a, a genomic blockchain consortium um, so that we could share standards, we could kind of prevent in the future interactivity problems uh, so that consumers wouldn't be trapped in a platform that ended up being useless. Uh, you know, the recapitulation of the VHS beta wars uh, mm -hmm. uh, of times past uh, from my childhood. Um, and um, we uh, have a couple of our competitors who have agreed to work with us on the blockchain consortium. Not enough. Um, and I understand it because many of them haven't done token sales yet. Um, but we'll continue to um, uh, strive for that sort of interoperability. I, you know, I don't want to pick favorites, but I, I'm, I'm, I feel vindicated. So I, when we started this company, a lot of people looked at us cross-eyed and said, what, what good is that? Um, but uh, a year later now, uh, or a year and a half later now, with all, all of these competitors and some really high-class ones, including uh, uh, Luna DNA, who are Illumina, uh, alum, alumna, alum, <laughs> this is, I don't know. It's a play alumni, words there. It's alumni, difficult to say. Uh, uh, and, uh, of course, Nebula, which uh, is headed by uh, somebody who have, I've, I've admired for years as I've written about genomics and ethics, uh, George Church. You know, we're, we're very happy now to be in that kind of company. And we get um, mentioned in all of the articles that talk about them because we happen to have been um, early to the game and have a platform that's nearly ready. That's really, it's really, um, amazing. And I think that people need to still get educated about all of this. I think that, you know, we understand it. The people that are listening probably kind of have a good idea, but how would I tell my grandmother that she needs to get her DNA sequence because of this and that? Yeah. You know, um, well, the same way I tell my seven year old daughter, Okay, um, my daughter is starting to understand. It helps that her mom is a genetic scientist, and you know I have some connection to genomics now. For sure. Um, but you know she understands that um, heredity does um, matter for your health. So you are a combination of your parents, and those genes that they give you um, are responsible in no small way. Uh, for how you live, for the health you enjoy, for the diseases that you suffer, um, but that 
they are not your destiny. Okay? If genes were your destiny, there would really need be very little point to know all about your genetic makeup, what was going to happen with what happened, right? If you've read your 23andMe reports, you'll see it's all in statistics. Right. Okay, you have such and such a chance of getting X, Y, Z, or having you know these traits or conditions. And, and that's really important for people to understand. That is the part I have the hardest time trying to explain to people, because there is this notion that genes are your destiny, and then they aren't. Um, they are um, they're sort of the, the foundation upon which your life and health will grow, but you have some control over the rest. And understanding how so gives you a great deal of power. So um, knowing, for instance, that you have uh, an elevated risk of heart disease can help to give you some guidance on how to live, can help to gear your um, daily habits and, and change things for the better to increase your um, chances of a longer, healthier life. Um, also, there are some things that um, you know we can know directly about how drugs, for instance, interact with us. So if you have a uh, uh, um, you know, certain um, gene, you're going to metabolize certain drugs differently. And we can treat you better by understanding that. So getting these tests is really important for carrying your health forward and you know, taking ownership over your, your health. Not just over the data, but over your health. Yeah, absolutely. If you know someone finds out they're more susceptible to a certain, uh, for example, men mental illness, maybe they can avoid uh, starting doing recreational drugs, for example, or maybe that would be advised at least. Uh, it's well, that's a long way off. So you know, we don't know. We hardly know anything about the connection of genes to mental health. We're learning slowly about things like, you know, like uh, organic brain diseases like Alzheimer's. Right. Um, things like autism and schizophrenia become a lot more complicated because they're polygenic. There's so many genes involved, so many epigenetics um, involved that, you know, we, we have a long way to go. But, yeah, we want to know that. We definitely want to know that. Smoking, for instance, you know, um, it, it, if you have a certain genetic profile, your chances of getting cancer by smoking may be significantly increased hmm. uh, or you, it may be uh, almost negligible. Not everybody who smokes is going to get cancer and a lot of that has to do with your uh, genetics and and that's power too that you should have in your hands. You should know. So I wonder now, do you think a person or like let's say a couple who's smoked all their lives and then had a child, is that child more or less susceptible to getting lung cancer? Um, Who knows? That's a, that's why we need data. We need a lot more data. So when we, well, as we gather that data and as people self-report on their habits and we have generation after generation of that data, then we will be able to know things like that with greater certainty. Well, what if we knew that about a, a baby? How do we prevent them from being discriminated against as they go through their life? Excellent question. So this is an area of ethics that I was interested in when I was writing about genomics and ethics. And, and you know, discrimination based on genes is a real danger. And this is why I'm careful to, to explain to people that genes are not destiny. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, you know, 
they don't tell you um, the future um, and they don't define you. Um, so, you know, you have to, we have to be clear about that and we have to educate people about that. But we have some laws too that protect against discrimination. So um, that might be necessary in some, in, in some cases. The GINA Act, which was um, passed a few years ago, um, prevents discrimination uh, in employment and insurance based upon your genetics. And um, I, I think that might be ultimately necessary to have that sort of regulation. When did, was that passed? So this was a recent... I think recent. it was about 10 years ago now. Um, it was initiated by my former congresswoman, um, Louise Slaughter. Hmm. Um, okay. So I think it's about 10 years ago now. Interesting. So do you think that we'll maintain that kind of um, regulations? or I just feel like it might. someone might convince us that it's a good idea to discriminate against people that might not survive as long or something like that well no i you know i'm, I'm in favor of empowering people um and so if the inf information empowers you to make better choices that's great so if for instance you're susceptible to i don't know um uh, lung disease uh you should not be working in a asbestos plant or something like that right but that maybe sh should be your choice instead of having somebody else like a government tell us we can't do that so I think it's okay to protect you um, by giving you information, but it's wrong uh, to prevent you from doing things based on that information. Yeah, that makes sense. The better information you have, the better decisions you can make about your own life, about your uh, your own path. So that totally right. makes sense. Yeah, people should be able to take risks if they want. I have no problem with that. Yeah, I mean, I it's their life, their choice. Yeah. Yep. Totally. I mean, if you happen to be susceptible to lung, lung cancer from tobacco and you still choose to smoke, you know, that's your choice, but your premiums are going to go up. <laughs> right. Well, if they know about it, right. If the insurance, Oh no, just because you're a smoker, you got to report that. Of, yeah, that's true. You don't have to show them the genetic profile. <laughs> so as I was doing research on, um, you know, your background, I actually saw that Actually, my question to you is, what is one of your favorite shows, TV shows? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, Breaking Bad is uh, the best show ever. <laughs> I wanted to talk about You've written well, two books. Routine, <laughs> I, I've noticed you wrote two books, Breaking Bad and Philosophy in 2012. And then you yeah. wrote a book called Philosophy and Breaking Bad. Uh, yeah, you co-authored it um, right. or co-edited it with in 2017. So... What's the difference between the two books? Well, the first one was more for, for a popular audience, actually. The the one that Open Court um, um, published is part of their Ant Philosophy um, series. Uh, started by my colleague uh, at the University of Buffalo, Bill Irwin, who's become uh, you know a, a real leader in the popular culture and philosophy field uh, and continues to edit now at Wiley, a series on um, popular culture and philosophy. So his first book, I think, was Seinfeld and Philosophy, and that was a huge hit. Huh. Um, and then came Simpsons. And um, anyway, I've always been a oh, fan of his stuff, and I've written chapters for those books. And then I, I got the great honor to edit um, those two on Breaking Bad. And I, I think you know I've been on a lot of uh, TV and radio shows talking about Walter White too. 
That's really interesting. Uh, it's a great show, and I think that there are a lot of situations and scenes in that show that makes you think about what is right, what is wrong. You know, it's not a simple black and white question. And you know, as we start looking at these new technologies, um, you know, genomic technology, but also artificial intelligence, it's really going to be important that we discuss these topics to extended lengths and detail because otherwise uh, we might miss something and it'll come back to bite us uh, really dramatically. Yep, I fully agree. Very cool. Um, So actually I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about your your growing community and how you know you're fostering that. Yeah, well um, we have a great community of people. I'm, I'm in regular touch with them on our Discord and on our Telegram. Um, we started on Slack back in the day, um, but uh, we gravitated to Discord, and there's a couple of groups on Discord. There's an official one, and there's an unofficial one. Um, I hang out in both some and uh, chime in every so often. But, you know, I've always been very grateful to have the support of our community members. They've been uh, really helpful, first of all, in giving us feedback, um, in providing me encouragement. I like them. I enjoy chatting with them. Um, and the community keeps growing. And it, it really has given us the strength to persevere and to, um, we think, prevail. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of, the, one of the great benefits of having done a token sale was building this community um, because that's the genesis of, 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 of that interaction. And it's been very rewarding for us. Right. I've heard you know, the abbreviation ICO, normally people think of initial coin offering, but there's also also this uh, idea of initial community offering as well. So I think that's definitely true. And, uh, you know, we're nothing without the people that we work with and that support us. So I think that's important to keep fostering. Um, I was wondering, is there any like kind of advice or anything you want to leave the audience, kind of let them know how to, um, reach you if they would like to talk to you what's the best way to do that yeah you can always find me um on uh uh telegram uh i'm dr capsule on telegram and you'll find us in the telegram uh group for encryption dna uh you'll find uh, uh, me uh from the website you can find my contact information there and we have great team that's always willing to respond if they have time uh mostly they're coding um, but, uh, for instance, Monica Sandoval, who is our U.S. Um, um, uh, sales uh, um, manager, uh, is always happy to, and she's often online. You'll find on our website there's a little chat bot, and it's got her picture. She'll uh, answer your questions, and if, if she can, she'll send, send you to me. Um, but please do reach out. We're always happy to um, answer your questions um, and serve you the best we can. Awesome. David, thank you so much. Is there anything else we might have, uh, I might have missed you want to talk about that would be helpful for our audience to know? Um, I don't think so, no. I hope I'll see people at a couple of upcoming events we'll be at. I'll be in uh, the Health Further Conference in um, Nashville, Tennessee at the end of uh, August. I don't know when this uh, podcast is airing, um, but uh, I'm going to give you the dates anyway. Sure. Uh, it should be next, uh, next week on Monday. So. Okay, terrific. Great. So uh, there's still time. Um, that's going to be a great event down in Nashville, Tennessee. Um, and that I'll be speaking on the 29th. Um, and it's the 28th and the 29th is that event. 
Um, and uh, then maybe I'll see you at the Exponential Healthcare, exponential.healthcare um, conference in um, Newport, California, October 10th. Or there's a, the Blockchain 1000 event in um, October 30th uh, down in Miami. So maybe uh, if, uh, if I'm lucky, I'll get to meet some of your listeners at those events. Yeah, I would certainly hope so. And those are some pretty good uh, spots to have those conferences. It'll be a lot of fun, I'm sure. And your people will be learning a lot too. So looking forward to that. Um, again, David, thank you so much for joining. Would love to have you back one day and watch your progress. So thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, all you cyberpunk health warriors and nimble digital disruptors. Check out healthunchained.org. And remember to subscribe to Health Unchained on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and iTunes. Join the Health Unchained community on our Telegram group, t.me slash healthunchained. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends, your bosses, your teams, your students to listen and subscribe. Thank you.